What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean for us to have faith? How much truth is necessary? What must you feel? What types of experiences must you go through in order for you to be sure that you have faith? What is it about us, ultimately, at the end of the day, do we place our trust in so that we know that we have faith? Now, people have wondered this since the dawn of time. And it's not just Christians who have wondered this. I mean, all sorts of people, no matter where they land on the spectrum of anything, have thought about this. Relativists, they'll say that, hey, it's about whatever works for you, right? As long as you're true to that, then you're okay. Pluralists will say, hey, listen, we we don't have, we know that there's an ultimate reality, but we don't know what that is. We don't really know how to get there. What really matters is that you're on a path for that. And ultimately, it'll all work out. Inclusivists will say, yeah, Jesus is the one way, right? He is the way of salvation, but explicit faith in Jesus Christ is not necessary to be saved. What really matters is that you're true to whatever light, what amount of light that you've received, as long as you're uh, you know, true to that, faithful to that. That's ultimately what matters, right? It's not so much that you believe explicitly in Christ. What matters is that you have a faith response to that level of light that you've received. So, in their opinion, saving faith is not characterized so much by cognitive content as it is by its reverent quality. It doesn't matter what truth that you have or what you believe, but how earnestly you believe it and act upon that belief. And in that case, the, the inclusivist would say, then Christ's sacrifice is then applied to the faithful. Okay? But here's the thing. If you boil relativism, if you boil pluralism, if you boil inclusivism down to its core, they all argue that salvation, which they see as a uniting or a reconciling between God and man, comes through devotion to religious practice. It comes through enthusiastic emotional responses. It comes through one's own personal assessment of their goodness. It comes through one's own human spiritual experiences. It basically it boils down to religiosity and zeal, piety and passion, devotion to a form of religion and enthusiasm in its practice. That's what they say, right? And I say all that because more often than not, when we are answer that question, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to have faith? Our answer is really not any different. We Ultimately, we trust in, in some sort of religious form, some, some routine that we abide by, or we trust in our own emotional or spiritual experiences to validate our claims that we have faith, and therefore we're saved. It just boils down to religiosity and enthusiasm. It's what we do and what we've experienced. And at that point, truth is optional. And you see this even across the board. Like, I mean, think about, um, think about all the, the cults and false religions that are out there in this world. I mean, think about it. We might, we might deny uh, the truth claims of, of Muhammad or Buddha or, or, um, or Jim Jones or David Koresh. But people still followed them because they were dedicated to a form of religion and they were passionate about it. 
And here's the thing, the closer we get to the truth of God's word, the more difficult it can actually become to discern when we're actually abiding by religiosity and enthusiasm or if we're abiding by the truth. And, and the, we see in the New Testament that, that the apostles, the early church leaders were dealing with this as false teachers were coming from among them. Right? Think about the Judaizers and the Nicolaitans. They're all there coming out of the church proclaiming partial truth but not complete truth. And they were abiding by their religious activity. They were zealous in what they were doing. But partial, believing partial truths and following religious practices and having some emotional experiences are not enough to save us. To be saved, we must know. We must love, and we must follow the true king. And that king is Jesus. We'll see that this morning in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And that's page 847 there in the Bibles in the chairs. So if you would, please turn with me. Page 847, Mark 11, 1 through 11. Says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will, re- will send it back here immediately. And they went away. And found the colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before, and those who followed, were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem. And he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now this passage is often referred to as the triumphal entry. I think if you actually look at the the heading that's above chapter 11 there, in your Bibles it will say the triumphal entry. Does it not? Right? Okay, just remember those aren't inspired. Okay? Now... Those, uh, this, this event occurs in all four Gospels, and so they call it that same thing in all four Gospels so that there's consistency across the board. You know that this is the triumphal entry. This is Jesus entering into Jerusalem. But, you know, not all the Gospel writers have the same purpose in mind as they're telling this event. And it doesn't mean that there's inconsistency between them. They just have different perspectives, different purposes in mind. Right? If you read Matthew and Luke in particular, they're very concerned about telling this event in all its glory. And John, even to some degree, is as well. But Mark has a little bit different perspective, a little bit different uh, purpose in mind in his telling. You see, see, Matthew and Luke, they write based upon, uh, from their perspective that they have at the time that they're writing, which is after the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. This is after Jesus has opened their minds to understand the Scriptures of the things that are concerning Him. 
John takes a slightly different perspective in his telling of it because he wants you to understand that though this glorious triumphant entry is true, right? This is who Jesus is in all his triumphant glory as he enters into Jerusalem. He's very careful to tell you that the disciples didn't understand at the time. But instead, he said that when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. That's John thirteen sixteen. But Mark, he wants to tell us what was happening in that moment. He wants us to see from that perspective, from that moment in time, what was going on and what was happening. No one really understood the meaning or the implications of what was going on. There, where truth was being said, where religious practices were performed, where people were enthusiastic and expressive, no one understood the significance of what was really happening. They still didn't know who Jesus really is. And that's why Mark's entry is not so triumphant. The people don't understand. Now there's three main misunderstandings that we're going to look at from this passage. The first one is that Jesus is the divine Lord but he is not recognized. Verse 1 begins with, with Jesus and his disciples nearing the end of their journey. They've now made it to the Mount of Olives near the villages of Bethpage and Bethany, and they're overlooking Jerusalem. They're looking down upon the city of David, the holy city, the place where Jesus had told his disciples that he would be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he would rise. Jesus is about to enter the city of God, the holy city, the very center and heart of the Jewish religion, the dwelling place of the temple. This is a glorious thing, but it's also the place of his death, the place where three times he had foretold that he would suffer and die and rise again. Jesus' journey to the cross that began as he descended from the Mount of Transfiguration, that place where Peter, James, and John caught that glimpse of Jesus' heavenly pre-existent glory, will now end on Mount Zion, the place where Jerusalem was built, the very place where time and time and time again, God has revealed his glory to his people, and he will do it again, but this time in the death of his son. Now, Jesus has been traveling around for about three years, ministering. And everywhere he goes, he's on foot, with the exception of being in a boat. Though Jesus could walk on water, he didn't make a habit of it, right? Everywhere else, though, he didn't use a vehicle, right? He, did, he, he walked around. I mean, that's what we get. I mean, look at all the gospel accounts. You never see him riding on a horse. You never see him riding on a cart. You know, they, they didn't have trains, planes, and automobiles in that time, right? So, I mean, he's walking. Like for three years. And we even saw two weeks ago when we looked at the passage that precedes this one, that Jesus is embarking on a journey from Jericho up to Jerusalem. Jericho being 800 feet below sea level. Jerusalem being 3,500 feet above that. Right? This is an arduous, mountainous trek. This is a difficult, laborious journey. They are climbing up sharp rocks. It's difficult all the way. Right? And Jesus is doing that. Right? Walking. And now, 
he's at the Mount of Olives, which is the pinnacle of that journey. It's the highest point in that journey. And he's now looking down over Jerusalem. The remaining two miles that he has to go is a relatively easy downhill descent. And so it's a really funny time in the ministry and life of Jesus to be asking for a ride. Isn't it? He's been walking around for three years. He's even walked on water, right? And he just climbed up a mountain. Not walking around, he didn't ask for a ride there. So why now, with this last two miles, is Jesus asking for some sort of alternate form of transportation? It doesn't make sense. It's strange and totally unnecessary on this last and easiest leg of his journey to ask for a donkey to ride on. Unless, of course, he, there's a purpose behind it, right? Unless there's some deeper meaning that's happening here. Now, Matthew and Luke, they tell us explicitly what it is, but Mark just gives us clues. He doesn't tell us specifically. He wants us to figure it out through Jesus' instructions. And the three clues that he presents is the first, that Jesus will ride on a colt. Second, this colt will have never been ridden on before. And third, Jesus calls himself Lord. Those are the clues we have to work with. What does this mean? All right, the first clue, why is it significant that Jesus rides a colt into Jerusalem? Now remember, Jerusalem is the capital city, right? It's the city of David, the city of kings, the city that had long awaited the return of this Davidic king, this hope of a Messiah to return, that Christ would come and give them victory over their enemies. And time and time again, throughout the, 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 the course of Israel's history, God had promised this Davidic king to come. And one such promise is found in Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. This is Zechariah prophesying 500 years before Jesus was ever standing here. And he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. God says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. And as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from their waterless pit. For as long have they been hoping for this coming king, this one that Zechariah had foretold, who would ride on a colt on the foal of a donkey. He would be humble and righteous. He would bring salvation. He would bring peace. And because of the blood of the covenant that God had made with Israel, He would free their captives from their imprisonment. They longed for the day that they would rejoice at this coming victorious king. And then there's Jesus riding on a donkey. But there's even more to the first clue. To see, you actually have to go back to Genesis 49, where Jacob, one of the patriarchs, blesses the twelve tribes of Israel. When Jacob blesses Judah, the fourth son, he says, listen, you are going to rule over the other brothers, over the other tribes of Israel, like a lion, the scepter, which is that big stick that kings carried around, will not depart from your hand. And then he says in verse 11, binding the full binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his vesture to the blood of grapes. Now, here's Jesus of the line of Judah, the true vine, riding 
the colt of a donkey. He's the fulfillment of the promise to Judah that, his, that this king from his line would rule forever. He is that coming king prophesied in Zechariah. Jesus called for this cult in order to fulfill these passages. They all point to him. Friends, there are so many passages in the Old Testament that point directly to Jesus. And we're, we're presented illusions and we're presented quotes from the New Testament that point us back there so that we can marvel and wonder at the fact that God had always planned this. This is always part of God's plan. 500 years before it ever happened, Zacharias said that it's going to go down like this. Jesus makes sure and it happens just that way. He wants us to see. He wants us to understand and he wants us to worship that God has made this plan from the beginning to unfold itself in the person of Jesus Christ. The second clue is that adds to Jesus' identity as this long-awaited messianic king when he's, he asked for a colt on which no one has ever sat. That kind of seems like a silly thing. You, you want us to bring you a baby donkey, right? You're like, you don't ride baby donkeys because they can't carry you very far unless there's another purpose in mind, right? Which is... In that day, there were strict laws about donkeys and horses of the kings. No one else was to ever sit upon them. Only the king. Right? So even in this, there's a, there's a pointer to the fact that Jesus is king. Then the third clue, Jesus calls himself Lord. Jesus has been referred to as Lord four times so far in Mark. Once in chapter 7, when the Syrophoenician woman recognized his true identity... Once when Mark states that John the Baptist came to fulfill Isaiah 40 in preparing the way of the Lord, and twice Jesus refers to himself as Lord. He's Lord of the Sabbath in chapter 2, and the Lord that has delivered the man in chapter 5 from the legion of demons. Now this is the third time that Jesus calls himself Lord. And every time he does, he's not just saying, hey, I'm kind of a master. Hey, I'm, I'm kind of a sir, like that you need to respect me. No, it points even beyond the fact that he is king to the fact that he is the divine authority as the Son of God. I mean, think about those contexts in which it's mentioned. Who can command evil spirits to flee but the supreme God? Who has Lord... Who is Lord over the Sabbath but the God of the law, the God of Moses? Who was Isaiah and John the Baptist preparing the way for other than the sovereign God of all? And yet this divine title, Lord, is both applied to and self-attested by Jesus. And then you add to this divine authoritative claim the fact that Jesus has accurately described what's going to happen. Right? I mean, think about this. Go into the village in front of you, and right away as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. You untie it and bring it, and if anyone asks you about it, say that the Lord has need of it, and he will send it back here immediately. And that's exactly what happens. These two disciples, they go into this village, and they find this colt. They untie it. Someone asks them about it, and Luke tells us it's the owner of the colt that actually asks them about it, and they give the response, and then the people let them go. I mean, that's amazing. What? You just nailed it, right? Now, some people want to argue that Jesus had kind of made this arrangement ahead of time, but, but that ignores the fact that we have already seen in Scripture that Jesus has divine foreknowledge. John chapter 1, Jesus tells Nathaniel what he had done that day. 
John chapter 4, Jesus is with the woman in the well, tells her everything that she ever did. And we've already seen that Jesus has predicted his life, death, and resurrection in great detail, three times so far in Mark. And it's going to go down exactly the way that he said it would. Now, this is just another example that it's given, another indication that Jesus has divine foreknowledge, that Jesus knows the future, that Jesus has the mind of God. Here he tells them what would happen so that when it does, they would believe. They would believe what he would say, and hopefully they would believe in what he said was going to happen to him as he entered Jerusalem, that they would come to understand him as divine Lord. And as a response, that they would marvel, that they would praise Him, that they would trust in Him, even as they experienced His suffering, His death, and His resurrection, even if they're included in that. There's just one problem. They don't respond. Did you notice it? Now, maybe His disciples are used to this sort of thing. Like, Jesus has done this enough, they're like... Oh, great, here we go again. We're going to go into this town. Sure enough, look, there's the donkey. Okay, I'll go and tie it. Okay, here comes the guy. Oh, yep, this is what Jesus says. And sure enough, here we go. Let's bring it back to him. And they're just kind of typical, typical of time with Jesus. But you would think that they would marvel at the fact that Jesus has accurately predicted what would happen. Right? You would think that they would. I mean, I would like to think that if Jesus told me to do something like that and it happened just as he said it would, I would be a little freaked out. I'd like to think that I would. I'm, pro- I'm probably not any better than the disciples, but I'd like to think that I would. And you would think that after what they just experienced, that they would trust in what, would, what he said would happen as he entered into Jerusalem. That they would remain faithful when Jesus was delivered over and condemned and beaten and crucified. But they didn't. Instead, they hid. Now, Mark says that they just simply brought the colt back to Jesus without a thought or a care in the world as to who he is. They just did their duty. I mean, sure, they throw the cloaks on the animal's back in chapter 7 as a sort of shoddy makeshift saddle for Jesus. And this is a worthy enough gesture for a teacher, but for the sovereign Lord over all, the promised Messiah, the King, the divine Lord, is this good enough for Him? (laughs) Now you see, they don't really get it. They don't really see the connections. No one cries out in amazement about what Jesus has just done. They simply do what they were asked to do, and they honor Him half-heartedly in the process. And how this applies to us is, how often do we do the same thing? Really? How often do we just go and perform our religious duties, and we honor Him half-heartedly, and we kind of go on our way? Without standing back and just being amazed by who he is. How many times have we read over this passage and just kind of been like, you know what? Whoop de doo. Just reading Mark chapter 11. Got my check mark on my Bible reading plan for the day. And don't even give thought to the fact that this points towards Jesus as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. We don't think of it as Jesus having divine foreknowledge. This is God. 
He is worthy of my worship. I need to marvel at the fact that there is a donkey and he's riding on it. That is not shameful. That is amazing. But I don't get it. I don't get who he is. I don't get who he proves himself to be. Jesus is the divine Lord, but he is not recognized. Second, Jesus is the promised Savior, but is not wanted. Now, the lack of enthusiasm on the part of the disciples was compensated for by the excitement of the crowd. I mean, verses 8 through 11, we see that they spread their cloaks on the ground and that others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who, who were in front and those who followed behind were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! I mean, with all of this fanfare and rejoicing, surely the crowd has a better understanding of Jesus than his disciples do. Surely they are getting this. I mean, look at the response. They're spreading their cloaks on the ground. How many of you take off your jacket and throw it down on the ground for somebody? Like, we, we kind of hear that as like a Boy Scout gesture of being kind to old ladies, right? But, but no one does that. And here they're throwing their garments down on the ground, right? So that his animal can walk on it and defecate on it. Like, this is, this is like, uh, the kind of homage that was paid to Jehu when they anointed him king of Israel in 2 Kings 9. This is a tribute that is worthy of a king, is it not? And then there's, they cut leafy branches, which Luke identified as palm branches, and they placed them on the road before him. I mean, there's jubilance, there's celebration. They danced, they shouted, they sang songs that were filled with such truth. Hosanna! Which means, God, save us now. God, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna. God, save us. God in the highest, save us. I mean, surely this is worship worthy of the divine Lord and promised Savior. I mean, look at their reverence. Look at the truth that they're proclaiming there. It's all true, isn't it? God save us now. Praise the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God for the coming kingdom of our father David. Praise God in the highest. I mean, surely this is honoring to Christ. They are performing their religious duty and they are enthusiastic in the process. I mean, surely they understand. I mean, look how lively this worship is. The music that they had going at the time was pumping, right? If they had banners, they would be waving them up and down. And if this was after the Pentecost, then man, they would have been speaking in tongues and slain in the spirit and barking like dogs, right? Right? Well, again... Mark gives us some clues that might poop this party a little bit. I mean, first of all, got to chuckle out of my kids there. <laughs> first of all, we've already seen that the crowd has followed Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They followed him to be fed. They followed him to be entertained. Or they followed him to make him the political revolutionary that they wanted him to be. And that's particularly important for our context. You see, throughout the Gospels, the Jews were hoping for this coming Messiah who would deliver them from the Roman oppression. 
They wanted a military leader, a king who would restore them as an independent nation again. That's what they were wanting. They saw all those predictions, like Zechariah chapter 9, and they assumed that they understood them. They believed these messianic passages promised a political savior, but nothing more. Then there's the preceding passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. As this crowd is on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, they are confronted by the blind man, Bartimaeus, who cries out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me! Right? And then Jesus heals him. And so here they are, and they're starting to put things together like, Whoa, this, this guy just called him the son of David, and he healed him, and we're going up to Jerusalem. Man, let's get going. This is awesome, right? This is deliverance for us. This is what this means. Now, praise God for his testimony that he used through, through Bartimaeus. I mean, this is, I think that the crowd's reaction is a commendation of the faithful witness of Bartimaeus. And we should celebrate that. That God uses weak and insignificant people just like you and me to do some pretty amazing things, right? And so that's a tribute to him, but the crowd does not get it. They don't really understand what he meant because they're still looking for political freedom where Bartimaeus was crying out for mercy. And then the enthusiasm would have also been fueled by the fact that Jesus, according to John chapter 12 which um, Caleb read the part that comes after that, but not before, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and people were going crazy about it. And then there's this, all the stuff that's in our passage. In verse 9, they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, this comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. This is one of six psalms known as the Egyptian Hillel, which means praise songs. These are songs that are focused on God's deliverance of the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. Right? That's why it's called Egyptian Hillel. And they would sing these songs as they made their way to the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of, or the Feast of Booths, whatever you call it, and Passover, which is what they're on their way to celebrate as they're traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem. That's what they're doing. They're singing these songs as they go. They sing those alongside those songs of ascent that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, right? So this is typical of what they were naturally doing, which means that some of this crowd may have just been following their religious traditions. They're singing Hosanna, blessed, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but they have no idea that that's Jesus or what that really means. I mean, that's a common... Passover tradition. It's a common Passover greeting that they would sing that. But still others did respond. Others recognized that there was something more because they're laying their cloaks down. They're laying their, these, these palm branches down. So perhaps they had heard the testimony of Bartimaeus and the account of, of Lazarus. And so they're, they're connecting Psalm 118 to Jesus, but they're hoping again that Jesus would free them from Roman oppression just as God had freed the Israelites from Egypt rather than acknowledging what they truly needed was salvation from themselves. Then there's the palm leaves. Right? Palm branches were a symbol of the Maccabean revolt. If you, you see about 200 years before Jesus' grand entrance into Jerusalem, Israel was once again captive to, this time, the Seleucid Empire. Right? And it wasn't until you know, Judas Maccabee led this revolt that freed them from this oppression that, that they were, they were um, 
freed from, from all this control. And, and after that, the palm branch became a Jewish symbol that the nation of Israel would rise again. So the people are laying down these leaves. That's actually an indication that they were hoping in national revolution again against Roman occupancy, just like the Maccabean revolt that happened 200 years earlier. Then the crowd even added this comment, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Now unlike verse 9, that previous verse, there's no close parallel in the Old Testament. They're not quoting from a psalm like they did in verse 9. But it is an indication of their hopes and their beliefs, what they were longing for. It does have a scriptural connection based upon um, God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that his kingdom would be established forever. And also this, this messianic hope that comes from the prophets that, that this Davidic king would one day return. And now here they are, and they're marching towards the capital city. They are celebrating the coming of this miracle-working Messiah who would save them from their political enemies and reestablish the earthly kingdom of David. That is what they're doing. They are praising God because they think that God is giving them what they want, political freedom. And in that moment, they think that it's coming through Jesus. And so they rejoice. Now, I realize I just gave you a whole lot of detail right there, right? But it's significant. And personally, I find it fascinating, okay? I mean, I love to see Old Testament connections. I love to see historical context and how they're fulfilled in Christ. And in fact, you would be well served to study the Old Testament, right? You will open your eyes in ways that you can't even imagine to what is happening in the New Testament. Right? So hopefully this gets you amped because it gets me amped. And, it, and if it does, then I can recommend a foundations course for you. <laughs> but this passage ties the promised kingdom of David to the kingdom of God that Jesus has been proclaiming since chapter 1. And it is fascinating. I'm a nerd. I love it. Right? I do. It's such rich truth. And you can study and meditate on this kind of stuff forever. But here's the kicker. Here's what boggles my mind. These Jews are proclaiming such right doctrine, such correct theology, such a certain reality. And they're doing it with passion. They're doing it with expression. They're doing it with excitement. But they are completely oblivious to its true meaning. They don't get it. They don't know what it means. And how do I know? Where were they when Jesus was delivered over? If they really understood this messianic hope, where were they when the suffering servant was suffering? Where were they in his death? Where were they in his burial? Nowhere. Now they were blinded by what they wanted Jesus to be. Okay? Yes, they were worshiping. Yes, they were expressive. Yes, they had a measure of truth to it. But what they really wanted, what they were really expressing, what they were really worshiping was what their, their own desires for Jesus, what they wanted from Him. And ultimately, they were worshiping themselves. They didn't want Jesus. They didn't want God's promises in the way that He planned to fulfill them. They wanted to use Jesus to their own ends. 
And honestly, this is where it kicks us right in the face. Where it ought to. Because we want a Jesus that we can control. We want a Jesus that does what we want Him to. And we'll surround ourselves with just enough truth, just enough theology that we can twist it into a make, to make Him into a God that we want to serve. Which means that we ignore all the stuff that we don't like. And we fashion a God, ultimately, that's made in our own image. I'm worshiping myself. Yes, I want freedom from the shame and consequences of my sin, but I want my sin. Right? Yes, I, I want to avoid what seems to me to be an unfair, eternal punishment in hell, but if I'm honest at all, I don't really want heaven either. Yes, I want to see my loved ones in eternity. I just hope God's not there. And in the meantime, I'll perform my religious duties to boast in myself, or I'll seek out these emotional experiences because they make me feel good. But at the end of the day, I don't understand Jesus any more than I did before. I don't love Him any more than I did before. I don't want Him any more than I did before. And I certainly don't want to follow Him any more than I did before. Forget about following Him. Especially if that's going to mean suffering and hardship and pain and loss. No, let Him follow me. God, forgive us for the way that we fail to love Christ as we should. Help us to see our need of Christ. And may we long for Him. Jesus is the divine Lord who is not recognized. Jesus is the promised Savior who is not wanted. And third, Jesus is worthy of worship, but is not adored. Now for such an exuberant beginning, this triumphal entry has a rather mundane and anticlimactic ending. I mean, look at verse 11. It says, Jesus entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. I mean, what just happened? Right? I mean, they go from singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to this. Verse 11 is boring. Jesus basically goes in, takes a brief, just uneventful tour temple, and then he leaves early to go to bed. Is Mark just that bad a storyteller? Really? I mean, come on. This is worse than the ending of It or an M. Night Shyamalan movie, right? I mean, this is bad. I mean, suddenly the enthusiastic crowd has disappeared as Jesus goes into the temple. He looks around and then he leaves. I mean, what is that? Mark is doing more than just telling us bare facts here. To understand what's going on, we need to look at Psalm 118 again, that psalm that the crowd had been singing. You see, Psalm 118 begins by praising God for His steadfast love. And then it moves into testifying about how God rescues His people from their distress, which the one specific example that they cite is God's deliverance of Egypt or Israel from Egypt. But next, Psalm 118 describes this festive, triumphal procession into Jerusalem that reaches its climax, its ultimate celebration, its pinnacle, the the magnum opus, the climax of everything as they enter the temple. 
It was there in the house of God, the temple, that they were to sing, Save us, we pray, O Lord. That's Hosanna. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. But as Jesus, the one who does come in the name of the Lord, enters the temple, the house of the Lord, no one is singing Hosanna. It is silent. Jesus looks around, and as it was getting late, he left. There was no festive procession into the temple as there should have been. No one was worshiping because they understood that Jesus came in the name of the Lord. It's absolutely silent. And so Jesus looked around at everything. Now this is significant in Mark. Mark uses this word five times to describe the actions of Jesus. And it conveys two things. First, in looking around, Jesus is waiting to observe a response. He's waiting for an act of faith. He's waiting to see if that triumphal procession will indeed make its way into the temple. Will they see? Will they connect the dots? Will they sing Hosanna? Do they recognize that I am He who came in the name of the Lord? And He waits for it. But no one says anything. There is no true worship in God's temple. But Jesus does something else in looking around. Each time when that's used, He observes the situation in order to give an authoritative verdict. His looking around is an examination of the evidence in order to render a judgment, which is what he's going to do in the very next passage when he cleanses the temple. They are profaning the worship of God and he is about to curse it. This actually stands in fulfillment of another Old Testament passage, Malachi 3, 1-3. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare my way before me. Which is fulfilled in Mark chapter 1, when John the Baptist came and prepared the way for Jesus. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into the temple. And this messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. That's the priests who who, uh, orchestrate the worship and will find them like gold and silver. The hour is late and Jesus is about to refine. He's about to judge the worship of the temple. He and his disciples go to Bethany for the night, but he's going to return in the morning and Jesus will curse their worship. <laughs> after all that celebration, after all that rejoicing, after all those acts of religious obedience, even after the proclamation of truth, it's all for nothing because they missed who it was pointed to. They missed Jesus. Friends, we can worship the act of worship. Religion itself can be an idol. The euphoric feelings that we get as we sing songs, we close our eyes, and we raise our hands, those too can be an idol. Even right doctrine 
that does not affect the heart so that we love and adore Jesus or lead us to act upon convictions so that our lives can demonstrate the glory and worth of Jesus, not just in what we say, but in what we do, how we live, how we think, how we respond, then doctrine, no matter how right it is, if it doesn't change us, it too is an idol. Simple celebration is not discipleship. Enthusiasm is not faith. Speaking truth does not mean that you believe truth. The only thing that matters is that you truly know and truly love and truly follow Jesus. And you can't do that half-heartedly. If you are trusting in your religious practices or your emotional experiences or even the rightness of your doctrine, though you don't really know it to save you, then you're no different than the crowd. We must love the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. That means all of us, not just part of some or even all of those. It's all of us. But here's the thing. Praise God that at the end of the day, it is not up to you. Praise God that we do have a refiner and a purifier who is taking our half-hearted, partial, false worship and by His grace and His goodness is purifying that so that we might be wholehearted, wholly devoted followers of Christ. Christ is the true king. Let's know him. Let's love him. Let's follow him. If he is the king, may he be adored. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that your grace is sufficient even when we fail. And God, I pray that uh, as we reflect upon Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, that we would take an honest look at our lives and recognize the ways in which we fail to worship Him as we should. God, I pray that we are not blind to the truth, but that You give us eyes to see. I pray that our hearts aren't cold to affections towards Christ in light of who He is and what He has done. And God, I pray that we wouldn't just say words and feel feelings, but that we would respond in action, in volition, in actively following after Christ, taking every aspect of our lives and making them obedient to the one true King who is worthy of everything. God, I pray that you give us a heart for this. Help us to love and adore Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.